So I'm wondering if there's a more challenging seven words in Scripture in terms of intellect, not in terms of how convicting they are, but in terms of getting our brains around the text, then blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Then there's the promise, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then it's repeated again in verses 11 and 12. But just on its own merit, from a challenge to our intellect, what does it mean that blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's persecution? What does it mean that it's for righteousness' sake? I think Jesus is... uh, I think his tone at this point, this is the very beginning of the most important speech in human history, if Jesus of Nazareth is indeed who he says he is, if he indeed rose from the dead. And he's describing what it looks like internally and externally to be a follower of Jesus. So he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are those who mourn, the merciful, peacemakers. Then he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And I believe he has a tone of lament. And what he's painting a picture of and then asking us to live in the tension of is the fact that he has purchased a flourishing life for us. And yet, it will not always feel like a flourishing life. Right? That word, blessed, does not mean favored. Though you could, you could include that in what it means. Oftentimes when we say blessed, we're talking about a specific situation. A friend said, I'm blessed and deeply satisfied, thinking through the the text. I'm not against the word blessed, but the word here in Matthew 5 is thick and deep and profound and lasting. It actually transcends heaven and earth and even gets to the new heavens and the new earth. You see that in the promises, for theirs is the kingdom. And then he says of heaven... So it challenges us that Jesus is saying, this is the flourishing life, and it includes persecution. One pastor says it's deeply satisfied. Deeply satisfied are the persecuted? Really? That's one of the most important things Jesus ever said? That's the beautiful way of being in the world? Long-term following of Jesus comes with a reward. Jesus speaks very clearly and repetitively about that in the Sermon on the Mount. And it will sting periodically, at least, if not consistently. That's the persecution. But what's the alternative, though? What's the alternative to the neighbor love that Jesus commands? Selfishness, right? What's the alternative to pursuing justice and peace and love of God and neighbor where we find ourselves? Apathy? What's the alternative religiously? A lot of the current religions would preach escape is our only hope. Or worse, a religion where we act in a certain way and then God. Have you thought about our default? So our default is to believe that. I go to church, therefore God. I give some money, therefore God. I whatever, therefore God. Have you thought about how awful and terrifying that is? How much more power we have than we know we have? Because we don't have that kind of power. And then how capricious is God? 
if his requirement is an hour of your Sunday, and then he'll make it okay for you. He is not capricious like that. So while Jesus is asking us to live in the tension of the flourishing life involves some persecution, I want to point out that the alternatives are scary and shallow and not life-giving. They're not makarioi. It's the Greek word for blessed. They're not the deeply flourishing life. They're not the deeply satisfying life that was purchased for us on the cross. They're not the kingdom life that John the Baptist and then Jesus described repeatedly. You're like, you keep saying flourishing. You keep saying deeply satisfied. I very rarely feel that way. I'm increasingly convinced that the Christian's spiritual life is largely spent talking to God about his promises and how we actually feel with honesty. That's what in large part, spirituality is. That's why singing is so important. And some of you love singing, and others of you are like, I could do without the singing, or a little less singing. The reason singing is so important is we're speaking to our soul about the truths that God has given to us that we don't sense very often. The Apostle Paul summarized the kingdom, the offer of the with God life, as righteousness, joy, and peace. How often do you feel at peace? And yet God says, peace has been purchased for you and is yours now and eternally. How often do you feel joyful? Not happy. Joyful. Contentment in all circumstances. In the midst of legitimate fears and anxieties, still contentment that God is good and in control, that he loves and likes you. How often? And yet, joy is yours. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so the Christian spiritual life is speaking to God with honesty about that, singing in front of friends things that we believe and long to believe more deeply, praying that we would believe and believe more deeply what Jesus described. The kingdom is the internal and external reality of being a follower of Jesus. The first thing that Jesus said when he sat down to teach people about himself and about who they are as image bearers of God about what it's like to be a follower of him in the world, the first thing he did was teach these beautiful ways of being in the world that are possible because of the Holy Spirit's pursuit of us, the Father heart of God, and the work of Christ. They build on one another. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And serve in those areas. (laughs) A lot of the lists in Scripture, um, the chronology of them doesn't matter. So it matters in the commandments, but it doesn't matter in Galatians. Paul is saying, avoid all of these things because they're destructive. And these are all the things the Holy Spirit is doing in you in Galatians chapter 5. The Beatitudes, the beautiful way of being in the world that Jesus described, they build upon one another. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's men and women that know their need and know that it's 100% to be saved, to be guided, to be grown, to love God and neighbor. Our need is 100%. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's not about suffering. That's about us understanding that we long for love and peace and justice. We have a role in that, and we so often don't meet those standards 
and we are sad about that. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's us knowing that we have strength, and we learn to extend it gently. That's what meek means, not weak. It's actually the opposite of weak. It's strength that's accessible for our neighbors. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. The Holy Spirit is growing, is, uh, growing us. It's also groaning on behalf of creation. Growing us in a desire for righteousness as God defines it. And every time I say that, I wonder if you know what I'm talking about. Have you read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 and 6 and 7? Maybe probably take about 20 minutes, maybe 45 if you go slowly with it. That's righteousness as God defines it. How to give and not give. How to pray, how not to pray. How to use your hands for love and not for violence. Use your eyes and your imagination. What to do with our anxiety in light of the Father heart of God and the work of Christ. These are pursuing righteousness as God defines it. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I increasingly believe that's the opposite of our desire to control everybody. Mercy instead. Doesn't mean we're not honest about our relationships. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That's single-minded. We're grown in our single-mindedness towards God, knowing that He knows more about our happiness and what it means to live a life of life than we do. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus expands this a little bit. Some people would say there are nine beatitudes. Some people say there are eight beatitudes. You make up your own mind about this. I think this is an expansion of the eighth one. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Flourishing are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. The reason I haven't attempted to define persecuted yet is it's key that we remember for righteousness' sake. It's not... Well, it's flourishing to be treated hostilely because of what you believe, which is kind of the dictionary's definition of persecution, right? Like, that doesn't make any sense. We're not sure how that plays out into our life. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the persecuted. He said, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. I believe this is a long-term description of the flourishing with God life. What he's saying is that women and men who follow him will pay for it sometimes in the culture with their family. Their own false self will question them about it. And the evil one will certainly not leave you alone when you lean into the righteousness as Christ describes it. I think it's a long-term thing. I think it has a lot less to do with, with individual moments. Uh, when I was in college, um, I was in a fraternity with about 105 other guys, and there were about 70 of us that lived in the house, and uh, I didn't drink. At the time, I do now that I'm a pastor, which I find very interesting. But, <laughs> but at the time, mostly for Christian reasons, um, but also because of addiction that runs in my family, I didn't drink. And uh, I was mostly friends with the guys in the house. Uh, and one night, they hot glued an article to my door from The Onion called Jesus Converts to Islam. And uh, it was a long article, three pages, and they really hot glued it thoroughly. Like lots of hot glue was involved. My favorite line from the article I still remember was the most confused group are the Jews for Jesus who've now split into three factions. 
Jews who are now for Allah, Jews who are still for Jesus, and Jews who are for just being Jews again. Sometimes when I hear people talk about persecution, be it churches or political conversations, that's how it sounds to me. Because the with God life is not about a momentary pushback, whether for individuals or for groups. The with God life is not about that time that somebody thought it was weird that you're a follower of Jesus. It's the overtime reality of living in a broken world that won't honor our decisions to be generous or our decisions to love well when it's difficult and do the hard work of repentance and reconciliation. Persecution is when it stings over time because our own false self, the world that we live in, and the evil one are not for the righteousness and the joy and the peace that are yours because of the work of Jesus of Nazareth. They're not for it. Now, there's no penalty for joy or for peace according to Jesus, but there is a penalty. I don't know if that's the best word. There is persecution that comes with leaning into the righteousness of Christ. Although sometimes it can feel like there's persecution for joy, right? Have you ever been joyful and it just annoys somebody else? Or you're at peace about something and they're afraid? I think that happens with followers of Jesus too. I've used this spectrum before. Within the the scope of what Christianity teaches that, that, that God loves everyone, because of the work of Christ, those who call him Lord are reconciled, and then they have the Holy Spirit and receive joy, peace, and righteousness. There are those who believe that. They intellectually assent. Yes, I think that's true. Not much about their life is different. Then there are those, and this is the, this is the camp that makes me most nervous. Then there are those that believe that following Jesus is a religious thing to do and to know more. And here's what worries me. You're a Christian, and you're wondering if it's going to work for you. Is it going to make your your everyday happier and better? And this is why I'm so thankful that Jesus closed the Beatitudes with this. No, it is not always going to work. If by work, we mean I I show up and do the thing, and then God will take care of my life and solve my small and medium and large-sized problems. And then there's following. So there's belief, and then there's religion, and then there's following. And a follower of Jesus follows regardless of whether it works for them or not. Of course, if we let Christianity define what it means to work for it, then it works terrifically. But I think oftentimes what we mean is, if I do the religious thing, then God will make my life easier. Is it worth it? Yes. Peace and joy and the righteousness of Christ are incredibly worth it. Will it sting? in the world because of how the world is bent? Yes. Will it sting because your false self will attempt to convince you that you don't need to be righteous in that arena? Yes, it'll sting. Will it sting because God has not yet put away the evil one and he still has access to the world? Yes. Flourishing are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom Followers of Jesus continue to use righteousness as he defines it even when it doesn't work. And some of you would be chuckling right now if this weren't a Presbyterian church and you wonder if you're allowed to make noise during church because it's never worked for you. It has always given you peace and joy but it has never done those things that I talked about. It's never made your life simpler. 
I mean, if we believe Jesus is really the offer, if his offer of life is really true, then one of the most challenging things about being a Christian is all the people around us that don't profess faith in him. We love them and pray for them. We talk to them about it when they're not annoyed that we're talking to them about it. The reason I bring up belief and religion and following is to remind you something I hope you know is true, but I want to remind you again. The reason to believe the gospel of, the Jesus, of Jesus of Nazareth is not because it brings peace, though it does. The reason to follow Jesus is not because it brings joy, though it does. The reason to follow Jesus of Nazareth is because it's true. Because 2,000 years ago, a man lived 30 years of sinless life. We didn't even know it, except for an incident when he was born and when he was 12. And then from 30 to 33, he began explaining who he was and who you are and who I am and what God is like and what God is not like and what it looks like to be one of his followers and to flourish in the world. Then he predicted his own death. And then it happened. If you believe that to be true, then you follow regardless of whether life got a lot simpler or not. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. Not because they earned the kingdom, but over time, the kingdom in their life was, was visible at times. The fact that they were poor in spirit and mourned and longed to love well and knew that they didn't have it in themselves naturally to do all that and they leaned on Christ becomes clear over time. I want to remind you what the kingdom of heaven is, and it's both now and later, and then after that, even. We talked a little bit last week, because we are talking about peacemaker, about shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace. that transcends ours, because we often mean a lack of conflict. It means a lack of conflict, but it means far more than that. I want to remind you the good news of Jesus. We don't follow the good news of Jesus because of this. We follow because it's true, but then when we're following, here's what we receive. Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and peace. Do you remember what the peace of God is? I hope that you do. Let me remind you. The peace of God is knowing that we're known and loved by the Father. And we're confident in our role in the world as one of his sons or daughters. That's the peace of God. We're confident. We actually sense that we're known and loved. We're comforted by the Holy Spirit with a sense that we're known and loved by the Father. What's joy? Joy is contentment in all things. It doesn't mean happy all the time. That's why we use a different word. That's why the most robust New Testament definition of it for me is the book of Philippians, which Paul wrote from prison. And he doesn't say, this is great, I love shackles. But he does say, I'm content in all times, because I know that God is in control and that he loves me and likes me and because of the work of Christ, I'm reconciled to him. It's also righteousness. We also learn to lean into what to do with our prayers and not do with our prayers, what to do with our hands and not do with our hands, what to do with our imagination. God cares about your full being, not just your activity. 
That's the kingdom that we receive when we call Jesus Lord of our heart and our decisions, of our volition, of our will, of our affections. We trust him. Flourishing are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom, and their reward is great. I feel funny talking about the reward because of the prosperity gospel preachers. Are like, you know, if you give me $10, you'll probably have $20 in your bank account tomorrow, and nothing in the whole world troubles me more than people who say such nonsense in the name of Jesus. Literally, nothing troubles me more because I'm a pastor and that's such a distorted... It's not the gospel. It's not good news. It's a lie. They ha- anyway. But Jesus talked about reward all the time. If you read Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, which I would encourage you to do this week, talked about the reward all the time. Which we then connect that it's the joy and the peace and the righteousness. The reward is great and it's here and later. What if we're as estranged from God naturally as the scripture says that we are? Then the reward is reconciliation with him. That is good news. What if anxiety is not only a diagnosis, it's also the human condition, and the good news of Jesus speaks peace into it? Not fixing us, because we're still in a bent and broken world and many of us have chemical and spiritual and circumstantial issues that create legitimate fear and anxiety in us. And we look at the birds and the flowers, literally, and we remember that we have a good Father in heaven who loves us and likes us and is for us and takes care of them, and how much more so does he take care of us? What if we can be content in all things? What if joy is actually available to us That is the reward here. But that's not the only reward. Did you notice Jesus talked about heaven? And heaven is such a, I think in 2018, a tricky thing to talk about because, at least in my experience, in the 80s and the 90s, we talked too much about heaven. What I mean by that is the Bible talks a lot more about after Jesus returns than it does about heaven. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't say something about heaven and that heaven is not a very, very sweet place to be where there is no pain where our perspective changes. That's why it's so important to locate. Have you ever wondered why it's so important to locate God in the uh, Lord's Prayer? Our Father who is in heaven, like, why is that important? It reminds us of the perspective when we're gone from this temporal place. We won't know everything. We'll always be finite beings, and yet we'll understand our past, present, and future. What a gift that we receive in heaven. And yet it's not only that we receive the kingdom today, it's not only that we get those sweet gifts, and that's not all there is to say about heaven, it's also that we're waiting for Jesus to come back, at which time his kingdom is not just the internal and external reality of a follower of Jesus, his kingdom is everywhere. You'll have work to do, and it will not be annoying. That's a little bit simplistic, but it's true. Read Isaiah chapter 60 if you want to see some of the job descriptions of the followers of Jesus after Jesus returns. There's a huge shipyard. Kings of the earth are coming in. There's commerce. There's communication. There's feasting where we don't have to worry about if we're eating too much or too little. There's drinking and yet we're free from addictions. And we're with the Father. It is such a sweet promise. The reward is also here, and there will be a cost to it. I'm going to go through some of the the commandments to help us understand what persecution is. 
we're called by God to rest one day in seven. That day is for ceasing and for feasting, for celebrating, for not working. And every once in a while, your false self will tell you you've got to get those errands done. And one day, you don't do it. And your false self will just poke at you. You shouldn't rest today. And you actually rest. That's the persecution when the false self pokes at you. Commandment number five, honor your father and mother. You have a friend that tells you, why do you even talk to them anymore? Do you not remember how they treated you when we were kids? And because of that, perhaps you have some boundaries with them, but you still call them and you still honor them. That's the world persecuting you for living righteously as Christ defines it which is not to be naive, which is not to be foolish, which is not to put yourself in a relationship with an unsafe person, but it is to work to honor your father and your mother. The sixth commandment is about neighbor love. It's about violence in the Old Testament. Don't murder. Jesus expands that to not calling one another foolish, not calling them a fool in your head or out loud. You have spent some energy, if you're a follower of Jesus, reconciling with people in the world. It's like, why are you wasting your time with that person? You were fully justified in calling them a name. They were being whatever. But you've taken some time to go back to them and say, you know, I'm sorry about that. Would you forgive me? I'm not, I'm not going to do that again. Which is, by the way, forgiveness, repentance, reconciliation, which is the Christian path for relationships. We'll start talking about it in a couple weeks. And the world will not understand. And the world will, will, will poke at you. And that's the persecution. You will wonder if it's worth it, and yet Christ is saying, unequivocally, it is worth it. Though it will still be disorienting to live here until I return and make all things new. Flourishing are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom, and their reward is great. Joy and peace and righteousness here with Jesus eternally and pain-free in heaven, and then in the new heavens and the new earth, a new body, work that is not cursed, relationships that are not so challenging, with God all the time at a feast. The reward is great. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you that we are yours and you are ours because of the work of Christ, your pursuing love and the Holy Spirit. We praise you and thank you that we can sing what we believe. Lord, help us to believe it more deeply, that we are indeed reconciled to you, that we are given joy and peace and righteousness as we trust you. In the places, Lord, where it is not intuitive, where it is not clear to us, that your commands are right and good and true, would you help us to follow and to trust you? For the men and women in here, Lord, that are being persecuted because of their long-term following of you, either by their false selves, by the world, or by the evil one, would you comfort them, Holy Spirit? Would you give them peace and joy that they can sense? Amen.